when our boys were young. They were six and three. We had moved into a house in Lancaster County uh, that had an extra bedroom that we weren't using. One day I ran into an older friend from New Jersey who had three daughters, two in college and one who was just turning 15. Uh, the youngest daughter grew up in the shadow of her two older sisters who excelled in every area of life, uh, academics, athletics, uh, music. Uh, Emily was shy. She was intimidated, and she was unhappy and just plain normal. Uh, the weekend before Labor Day, uh, my friend called us and asked if Emily could live with us during her high school years, hoping that her attending a new school and a new environment would help her overcome her shyness and her attitude of resentment. Uh, towards her overachieving siblings. Uh, knowing that Donna and I are just average people, normal people, it seemed like a good fit. And since he promised to pay for her keep, we decided that that was a good thing too. Uh, so she came and joined with us. As she did, though, she asked the Lord to help her change her attitude and so she could become anyone she really wanted to be. The Lord did help her change her attitude. And she became happy, outgoing, vivacious, and the life of the party. When she went home for holiday, her parents were delighted. Upon graduation, she became a nanny, no doubt based upon all the excellent parenting skills she got from Donna and I, and uh, I'm sure. And then ended up as went to college, ended up as a TV sports uh, announcer for the Cleveland Indians. And uh, today, she lives in Savannah uh, with her husband and three children. So why am I telling you about Emily? Well, she is still the epitome of happiness and joyfulness. And she is illustrative of someone who, with the Lord's help, changed her attitude and it changed her life. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, which is our text for this morning. I'm going to read it quickly to you because you can read faster than I can talk. So read along with me. Philippians chapter 2, 14 through 18 says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I be to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the most important passage in this entire letter. Paul had talked in general terms about himself. He had spoken glowing terms about his relationship with Christ. He gave positive comments to the people who lived in Philippi. And then he laid this section on them. It evidently, evidently was a problem. You do that when you write letters, don't you? You start out sort of general terms and hit them some, warm them up, and then you hit them hard with the issue that you need to deal with. Well, what he hit them with is one of our big problems today. And that's why it's so important and so vital that we get this. Because once we do get it, it will change our lives for the better. So here it is. Change your attitude. Now, you know that you can't fix somebody else's problems. You can help them with their circumstances, but you can't fix their heart or their attitude. If they're poor, you can give them money, but that will only temporarily ease their circumstances and will not solve the reason why they're poor. You can make a law stating that racism is illegal and must not exist, but you can't make a person not be a racist. You can make a law that says stealing and murder are wrong, but people still, still steal and murder. That's been going on since the beginning of time. 
is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know? We all start life with a wicked and depraved heart. That's the baseline for all people everywhere. Now, what changes a person's internal desire to do what is right is when their heart is changed. And only God can do that through His Holy Spirit. But as we learned last week, we help when we point people to the good news, that's the gospel, that God reached down to us and changed us. That happened when we were challenged with our sinfulness and we listened to the Holy Spirit's drawing us to come to Jesus, and we did. We followed Him. Then our inner person, our thoughts, our attitudes, our desires began to change because God, through His Word, in the person of the Holy Spirit, came into our lives and we began to see life through God's eyes and not through the lens of the media or our culture. And that truth in itself can change our attitudes so that we can become happy people. Lights in a dark world, a shining city on a hill that cannot be hidden, and, and examples of people who attract others to themselves. And when that happens, we can point them to Jesus Christ, who lives within us, and we can, therefore, and must be happy. Even us melancholy people can do it. So get on with it. And that's the sermon in a nutshell. I'll now just use the rest of my time to explain how we came uh, to those conclusions. Now, because I'm a simple man with uh, just an average brain, it helps me to always understand why I am doing something at the time that I'm told to do it. The why always helps with the what. My first real job was working at a greenhouse at the age of 14. My first day on the job, I was sent into a greenhouse at, to pick the buds off of geranium plants. That was the instruction. Now, go to it. I had a hard time with that. Uh, plants are supposed to grow buds. Buds become flowers. And flowers are purchased by people. Why would I do something destructive to these geranium plants? No one gave me an answer. And so unhappily and without vigor, I was, did what I was told to do, kill the future flowers of geranium plants. My job performance was satisfactory, but my attitude wasn't. It wasn't until just a few years ago that I discovered I was actually helping the plant and the purchaser by enabling uh, the plant to grow more and hardier flowers at the right time by not producing buds too early, which is what I was instructed to remove. The why would have helped with the what. And so in this passage this morning, we're going to look at three commands that God wants us to obey. It's the what that we're going to find in the text, and each one is connected with the why we should do it, and then he gives us the how to get it done. So here's the first command, the what we are supposed to do. It's based on verse 12, and that is stop whining. It's not the Greek, but that's my translation. In verse 12, Paul says, work out your own salvation. And then he continues in verse 14 by saying, do all things without grumbling or complaining. You remember the commands that Paul wrote relating to other people in verses 3 through 8. He used Jesus as the example. He said, empty yourself, be a servant, be humble, be obedient, even to the point of death. Do all those things, and now, without murmuring and without complaining, be people who are just like Jesus Christ was. Isaiah tells us that the Messiah, when led as a lamb to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth, he did not complain. So what are we supposed to do? 
stop grumbling and complaining. That's what the text says. Now, you don't tell people to not do something that they're not doing. The Philippians must have had grumbling and complaining as part of their uh, descriptions. And the word of that aura of negativism had gotten all the way from Philippi to Rome where Paul was in prison. Now, you know what it's like when you're with somebody who complains and grumbles all the time. We all do it. And most of us think that we have a really good reason to do it now. Why this whole COVID-19 thing makes people grumble. We were told that this wiry virus has the ability to inflict only certain groups of people at certain places. For some reason, if more than ten people got together to worship in a church building, they were in danger of death. But it wouldn't infect anyone if they were at Walmart, Wegmans, or Home Depot. For that reason, we should have been conducting our worship services at the plumbing department at Lowe's. We learned that this virus wouldn't attack anyone marching for hours in a crowded protest through the streets of the city, but a few people praying together have just risked their lives. We were told that if we went to work to feed our families and pay our bills, we were self-centered and not loving to others. We were told lots of things that many of us questioned and grumbled about it. I sure did. And so did some of you. I've read your posts on Facebook. I think we're pretty good at grumbling and complaining, aren't we? Uh, We have teachers who are too hard, who always expect too much of us. We have parents who are overbearing and nasty. We have children who don't listen or behave like little angels. We have bosses who are unreasonable, even asking their employees to risk their lives by returning to work in the office. We have police who are brutal, protesters who are thugs, politicians who are clueless, and people who are rude. Now, not all, but this gives a bad reputation for all the rest of them. Why can't they all be just like us? Loving, happy, peaceful, patient, kind and good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. There's no law against any of that, is there? No, of course not. But are we like that when we're grumbling and complaining? No, I don't think so. We have reasons to complain, but do we really have reasons to complain? What do we, Americans, of all the people in the world, have to complain about? Well, according to the 2019 survey, nine of the top 15 things people in America complain about the most revolve around people. People who give bad customer service, who are telemarketers and make robocalls, who cut in line, who litter, who are loud, who are late, who stare at the cell phones, who send spam emails, who don't deliver our packages on time, and I would add, who hoard toilet paper and hand sanitizer. That list doesn't even include the relationships that many of us people complain about, about their parents, their spouses, their children, the people they work with, and their bosses. The other six things include uh, things such as complaining about the traffic, the weather, trouble connecting to Wi-Fi, a bad phone signal, uh, the car not starting, electricity in the house. How about other things that are out of your control? Like in New Jersey cafes, you're supposed to put your mask up between each sip of coffee. Now, by the way, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask is not going to be an issue at this church. We will do what we are asked to do for the sake of others so as not to offend, and we will be happy about it. Of course, you will know that since you're all wearing a mask. 
Well, the apostle didn't have things in mind when he said stop complaining or dispute. He did, however, mention a problem with people. If you look over at chapter 3, verse 2, it begins saying, beware of dogs. Now, dogs bark and dogs bite. But so do many people. And I'm not going to spend any time on that analogy, as I would have used cats as an illustration, since you can't control cats. Uh, but that's another story for another time. Paul also lists some other characteristics of these people who were pests, who were always complaining. I would have thought that Paul had a good reason to complain, since he was quarantined, he was locked up, he was sheltered in place for no legitimate reason. But he didn't complain about his chains or his condition. Instead, he rejoiced. It appears at this point in the letter, Paul was warning the church about their testimonies, what it says to others when we grumble and complain. You remember that the Israelites in the wilderness grumbled against Moses. But the Bible says that their complaint and their quarrel was not with Moses. It was really with the Lord himself. They hadn't learned to trust God. And when we complain, we're saying that we are not happy with the circumstances within which God has placed us. Did you hear that? We're not happy with God. In addition to stop quarreling and complaining, Paul added, stop questioning or disputing. You ever question or dispute with God? Did you ever ask God, what are you doing? Why am I suffering? Why do I have to put up with all this stuff? Questioning, disputing starts in your head, in your thoughts, before you verbally grumble. We think, God shouldn't be treating me this way. Neither should he allow others to treat me like they are. And so we end up with a bad attitude. Since questioning God isn't very productive, we often dispute with others who are around us. And I often see this in churches that I visit. Some people complain and question everything. They don't like the music. They don't like the preaching. They don't like the pastors. They don't like the other people. But it's evident to the world who's watching how we live and what we say. And they know we are supposed to love one another. That's what we preach. And the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Peter 4, 9, he said, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's where the what stop whining. Well, why not complain? Here's the why, the purpose, so that. At the end of verse 15, he says that you might shine in a world that is filled with negativism, pessimism, hopelessness, darkness. And Paul gives three good reasons why we should not be complaining. And the first reason is this. It's so that you may be, and then he gives us four things that are supposed to characterize individuals and churches as Christians. You're supposed to first be blameless. Not perfect. None of us are. But we're supposed to be above reproach. And Paul mentions this elsewhere in his letter. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He wrote that love, knowledge, and discernment leads to blamelessness. He noted in 3, 12 and 13 that he knew he wasn't perfect, but he was working on it. He said in chapter 3, verse 6, that before he met Christ, he thought he was blameless in the eyes of religious people as he was hoping to work for his salvation, which we know doesn't work. But at that point in life, he really hated God and Christ, and yet he thought he was a good God. But all of that was worthless. It was filthy rags when he was confronted with the person of Jesus Christ, who changed his mind and literally changed his life. 
besides blameless, or to be innocent, guiltless, pure. Innocent of what? Innocent of doing bad things? Christians and church always want to do what is right, right? We obey the laws of the land when they don't go against God's word. We don't want to do wrong things, and that includes verbally hurting other people or groups that don't deserve it. It doesn't mean we won't point out sinful acts, but we won't participate in them. We need to be innocent of wrongdoing. And then we're supposed to be children of God. Now, that's a pretty high standard. You'll note that Paul eliminated all sorts of inequality when he spoke to the churches in Galatia. And he stated that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we, together, are sons and daughters of God. We are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, and each person bears the image of God. This, then, is the basis for the dignity of every person. And as a church, we oppose the evils in society, including racism, cultural bias, gender discrimination, ignoring the poor, the aged, the disabled, and every other form of injustice against human beings. We have higher standards than the world has. And without blemish. Keep in mind it's easier to forgive than it is to forget. People remember what you said about them, especially if it wasn't nice. So keep in mind that the tongue is the hardest member of the body to get under control. That's where grumbling and complaining gets pronounced to the world. And that's what is written in James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So don't ruin your or stain your reputation by saying hurtful, untrue things. So why are we not to complain, to question, or to dispute? Well, the second reason is because we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Crooked is the Greek adjective scolios, from which we get our name for the curvature of the spine, scoliosis. It means curved, bent, crooked, as opposed to being straight. A generation of people who are bent, or morally bent, twisted, crooked, unscrupulous, and dishonest. Sound like there are any particular group of people you know about? Twisted or perverse translates a Greek uh, verb, which means to come to be distorted or deformed. And it refers to people who intentionally depart from the accepted standard of moral or spiritual values, who pervert the truth for their own gain. Again, isn't that our current events? So what's happening today is nothing new. It's been going on for millennia. Again, why should we not complain? Well, the third reason is a big one, and that is so that you shine as lights in the world. And here's where all of us need to look at our attitudes. We claim to be Christians. We have announced that to the fact when we were baptized upon the confession of our faith. We're expected to be representatives of Jesus Christ before the world, and the world expects the same from us. So the world must see a difference in us and in the church from any other kind of person or human institution. In fact, Jesus himself said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So let me ask you this question. Can others sense the presence of Christ in your life? Do others see you as a light in a dark world? If not, why not? Jesus again said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. 
you know that we as Christians have all the answers to all the problems in the world today? We have the answer to the unrest in our cities. We have the answer to hatred spewed by those who control the media. We have the answer to the racial strife that seems to rear its head every now and then. We have the answer. And you know what that answer is. It's Jesus Christ. For what he did and what he said can be wrapped up in one single commandment that Jesus taught us. And he said that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you will have inner joy and peace. You will be patient, kind, and good. You will act gently, faithfully, and you'll be self-controlled. There's no law in any country, in any society, or any tribe on the face of the earth that is against any one of those character qualities. They need to shine brightly in our lives. They need to be the shine, we need to be the shining porch lights in the dark streets of our neighborhood. What's Paul saying? He's saying when we conquer grumbling, we shine as lights. We stand out in a world. So the first command that he gave us was to stop whining. The second command, he says, is stand firm. And this is in verse 16. What should we do? Well, the way you shine as a light in the dark culture is by holding fast to the Word. Take these two phrases and notice their connection. Verse 15 at the end, it says, You shine as lights in the world. That's God's design for us in the church. And holding fast to the Word of life. The culture is crooked and perverse in many ways. And Paul says that we Christians, whose citizenship is in heaven, we shine in the world as lights. How do we do that? Well, we shed the darkness. How do we shed the darkness of our sin, our selfishness, our pride, our fear, our lust, and our bitterness? And Paul says the way you do that is you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. You shine by holding fast the word. Holding fast is a, translates a word that means hold your position or hold your gates. In 1 Timothy 4.16 it's translated, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Hold it. Don't let it slip away. In Acts 3.5 it's translated, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So the idea is holding fast with your attention. Holding fast is a participle. It's something that keeps on going. It's the means of not grumbling or disputing or murmuring. It's the how. How do we live a life that is less dominated by always being critical or pessimistic? How do we shine when everyone else is critical and pessimistic? We hold fast the word of life. So what's the word of life? The only time in the New Testament that this particular phrase is used. If the Apostle John had written his gospel before Paul wrote this, I might surmise that Paul was talking uh, specifically about Jesus. You remember in John 1.1, where John wrote that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He referred to Jesus Christ. But I don't think Paul had that gospel in his hands. The only other place where Paul even uses the word, word, logos, is in chapter 1, verse 14 where he notes that the brothers are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So is it the gospel? It certainly could be. Certainly in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, Paul had written to the church down the road in Corinth that they were to hold fast the word I preached to you. 
And then he goes on to tell them that everything that happened to Jesus, the good news, the gospel, was according to the Scripture. The Word of God. The Bible. The Word of life. Now here I have an argument with a popular national preacher, a fellow grad of Dallas Seminary, who subordinates the Bible to the events of the resurrection and the teaching of the church. He claims that the New Testament wasn't complete and in the hands of Christians until 300 years after Christ, and that the church grew from a handful of believers uh, to overwhelming the Roman Empire without the Bible it being in written form in the hands of the people. Thus, he teaches that the Bible isn't necessary when you tell people about Christ when you share the gospel. Now, I concur that in the first century, if you wanted to know about Jesus, you could talk to people who actually knew him. John, the apostle, lived until he was 90. If you wanted to find something out, go ask him. But if it isn't written, it isn't remembered. And it was written. And the New Testament was complete when John wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book in the Bible before the end of the first century, and the church accepted all of those writings as God's Word. We can't talk to anybody from those days. We don't have the videotape of the crucifixion of Christ or the resurrection, but we do have a written record of it in the Bible. And it is when we adhere to the objective written record of the Word of God that we can have the life that God intends for us to live. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to penetrate our hearts and helps to transform us into the image of His Son. I've told lots of people about the Gospel, but it's just my Word, my truth against theirs. Until the Word of God in written form is read and understood, that the Holy Spirit uses it to change their thinking and their hearts, and then God transfers them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. Their attitude about the Bible changes. They see their sinfulness. They see their need for forgiveness. They see that they need to believe Jesus, that He becomes their Savior and their Lord. And that changes their life, and it changes their attitudes. We call that becoming a Christian. And when that happens to all of us, what is written in the Bible becomes alive and starts to challenge our thinking, starts to challenge our attitudes, our way of life. And the what of stop murmuring and complaining, due to the why of our testimony becomes the how, the catalyst that enables us to live with a shining light in a crooked and a perverse world without complaining. Because we're content with what God has given to us as recorded in the Word of Love. So why is this so critical? Well, there's four promises that come from holding uh, the Word of Life, according to Paul, in this letter to the Philippians. And this letter given to us for today. First of all, the word of life promises that our outcome is secure. No matter what happens, when this life is over, we get to go to heaven. We get to see Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 6. Number 2, the word of life promises that the pain of our obedience will be fully recompensed as Christ was. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Number 3, the word of life promises that all the seeming setbacks of our lives are turned for the glory of the gospel, chapter 1 and verse 12. And the word of life promises that we already enjoy the inestimable treasure of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord, chapter 3, verse 8. Here's the truth. The word of God is fuel for your life. And the way that you shine as a light in a dark culture is by holding fast to the word. You hold your gaze on it. You hold your position on it. You stay with it. 
when others were dissatisfied with Jesus, he asked the disciples if they wanted to go away as well. And Peter said to Jesus, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter basically said, we're not going anywhere from your word. We're staying here with you and your words. We're holding our position here. We're holding our attention on your word. This is where we find true life. Now, the way that we're to understand life and live life has been given to us from God through his word. And that's the way he's decided to do it. So if we stay away from the word, the light grows dim. The word is the fuel for our lamps. You shine by holding fast the word. So give yourself to it. Hold it in your mind. Hold it in your heart. Learn from it, and it will change your attitude so your life will shine. I can't promise that you will shine if you just read the Bible as a boring book and the truth does not impact your heart. But I do promise that if you don't read it and take it to heart, you won't shine for God. So whether you think of the Word of God as fuel without which your lamp cannot shine or as food for which... Uh, your body and your soul cannot live, the point's the same. If we don't soak in the fuel and the food and eat the food of the word, our light dims and our soul languishes. Don't ever say that reading the Bible is boring. God is not boring. We are boring. TV is boring. Commentators are boring. The news is boring. Hold fast to the Word. Right? That's the what. Here's the why. Why should we hold fast the Word of life? Let me share with you five reasons we need to hold fast the Word of life in the New Testament. Hold fast to it for the sake of your faith. Paul said, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Hold fast to it for the sake of your joy. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. John 15, 11. Hold fast for it for the sake of your freedom. Jesus said, if you abide in my words, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 31 and 34. Hold fast for the sake of your holiness. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. John 17, 17. And then hold fast to it for the sake of your life. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4. Jesus lived off the word. He defeated Satan with the word of God. Do you think that you could defeat Satan without the word? Without it? You're a sitting duck. God has given every one of us a gift to help us through life. An infinitely valuable gift. His Word. So receive it. Hold it fast. Give yourself to it. Learn from it. It will change your attitude. It will improve your life, even in the worst of circumstances. Now, if I was tech savvy, I would play a video. But I don't know how. So now I'm just going to have to tell you what happened in on Thursday night. A white Washington, D.C. police officer was confronted by a white woman who accused him of being a racist, not knowing that the officer had a black wife and not caring either. The black officer came to his defense, and after arguing with her for a bit, finally came to the crux of the problem, and he said it magnificently, and here's what he said, and I quote, America has a sin problem. 
the world has a sin problem, ma'am. Okay? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. America and the world has a sin problem. You understand me? That's where racism, injustice, hate, and anger and violence come from. It's not about racism. And then as she walked away, he said, read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Amen. Yeah. Paul now looks at the Philippians uh, with the hope that they will indeed move through a period of complaining and questioning to a place of fruitfulness. And so he wrote in verse 16, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul already told them that he was convinced that he who began a good work and then would be able to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Now he reminds them of the pride that uh, he already has with them, that he takes in them. He said the Philippian church is his pride and joy when he gives an account to God on Judgment Day, the day of Christ. And just like a father who holds his baby son and announces that he is his pride and joy, so Paul saw this particular church as his offspring, hoping that their attitudes would bring joy to his heart. If the Philippian church failed to get their act together, Paul said that there was a sense in which he would have labored or run or worked in vain without purpose or result. You all know what it's like when you poured your life into someone, a child, a student, perhaps a disciple, and you see them ignore all that you taught them and you go astray. It's disheartening at best. But when what you've taught them enhances their understanding and improves their lot in life, you rejoice that they got it and you were able to help. That joy, that then is the third command that Paul gave to them and says to us, and that is, stay happy. Be glad and rejoice with one another, verse 17 and 18. And in spite of the fact that Paul was going to lose his life soon on account of his testimony for Jesus Christ, literally have his blood spilt uh, at the hands of infidels as a holy sacrifice, he still wrote, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon a sacrificial offering, of your faith. So just as a bottle of wine is poured over a sacrifice, an offering before it was lighted as a drink offering, even if that should occur, Paul said, I would know that you're holding fast to the word of life with Christ in your hearts, and I will die with gladness and with joy. By the way, that is how your pastors, your elders, your deacons, your teachers feel about each one of you right here and now. They know what it is that they can be used by God to impact lives for glory, for His glory, and that's what they seek and want to do. And so He calls for them to be glad and rejoice no matter what transpires. He has already said hard words to them. He said, stop complaining and arguing. Now He reassures them. He says, I'm glad and rejoice with you all, and likewise you should be glad and rejoice with me. Joy and rejoicing, of course, are one of the main themes of this particular book. And Paul is acting as sort of like a compassionate surgeon who, uh, in this letter, he's praising and encouraging, yet he wields his knife to cut the cancer of negativism and discouragement out of the Christian body that he loves. Christ loves us. Christ died for us. We are his body here on earth right now. And how he longs to perform this surgery in us so that our attitudes of joy might shine again which is our destiny in Jesus Christ. So what does he want us to do? 
He says, regardless of the circumstances within which we find ourselves, and we are in circumstances, we are to hold fast, don't give up. Then when I see the results of your faith, Paul says, my heart will swell with pride because I know that I've helped you along the way and not in vain. You've got the message, your attitude changed, and now he'll say in chapter 4, verse 11, in whatever circumstance you're in, you shall be content. So be happy. Why should we be happy? Because the word of life says so. Here's some quick passages for you. Psalm 126.3, the Lord has done great things for us. And so we are glad. Psalm 118.24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 70, verse 4, may all who seek you, God, rejoice and be glad in you. Psalm 32.10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 30, verse 9, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. How about the Proverbs? Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good work makes him glad. A glad heart, Proverbs 15, 13, makes a cheerful face. But by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is crushed. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11, he said, Blessed or happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And then in Luke 5:28, Jesus said, Blessed or happy are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Then we read the striking passage in Hebrews chapter 12, that our Lord Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, what was the joy that was set before him? It was his glorious expectation that in the lives of men and women like you and me who are being blasted and ruined, who are being torn apart and denigrated by sin, by rebellion, by self-confidence and self-effort, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, the life of Christ would enter into us and would help bring us focus and perspective, give us the joy and the fruitfulness of the Christian life. That's why he did it anticipating what his life would do, he endured the cross. He poured out his blood as a drink offering for our faith. And he's now seated on the throne of God. So, do you want to be happy for the rest of your life? Try something for a week or at least a day. Turn off the TV. Stop listening to the radio and put down your phone. That's all. And you will have one week or one day of peace. And to fill up your time, read the Bible once. Don't speed read it. Just take your time and read it. Think about it. Meditate on it. Talk to God about it. And then live what it says. It has worked for 2,000 years in spite of every circumstance that you can imagine. And if you do, you will find that you will stop whining, you will stand firm, and you will be happy. Listen to this expression of what your life can be when you take God's word seriously. The psalmist wrote, Happy is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of stoppers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not that way. They're like chaff. 
and be a tree. Allow the streams of water, God's word of life, to nourish your soul. Let's put that psalm in context with today and decide. Should we join with or complain about the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers that are all around us? Or should we change our attitudes? Stop whining, hold fast the word of God, and be happy. I vote for the latter. Are you with me? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. It cuts. Hits us right where we live. And I admit that I can complain and whine with the best of them. But you've shown me that your word says to knock it off. May I knock it off. And as a result, may I and all my brothers and sisters be like shining lights in the dark world so others can see Christ in us and we can point them to the one who can solve all the problems that we have both now and for eternity. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.